Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, Vice President for Scholarly Programs at the Center, and your host for this episode. For the past 20 years, the Nigerian film industry has dominated the film and television industry in Africa, with productions that are widely popular across the continent, among African diaspora communities in Europe, and beyond. Among the leading figures in that success is award-winning filmmaker Femi Udogbemi, whose efforts to professionalize and champion Nigerian filmmaking around the world earned him a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Nigerian Film Corporation while he was still in his mid-50s. Our guest today is Paul Ugor, an associate professor in the Department of English at Illinois State University, where his research involves African literatures and cultures, Black popular culture, Anglophone world literatures, post-colonial studies, cultural theory, and new media cultures in the global south. As a fellow this year, Paul has been working on a new project entitled The Cinema of Femi Udugbemi, Screen Media and Popular Culture in Nigeria. Welcome, Paul. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's, It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Paul, you contribute to an astounding number of fields, as I've just read, how did you come to this wide variety of approaches? Well, I uh, started my research on Nollywood in the mid-2000s. I had gotten a scholarship to go to the Department of English and Film Studies at the University of Alberta to do a doctorate. And at the time, I was interested in looking at uh, representations of youth culture in Nollywood cinema for a number of reasons. Uh, Nollywood is a genre that was created essentially by unemployed urban youth uh, who were looking for alternative avenues of sort of documenting and bearing witness to the vicissitudes of life in urban spaces in the context of sort of economic crisis of the mid-1980s. So not only is Nollywood a genre that was created by young people, it offered a platform for young people to convey their anxieties and hopes and struggles of everyday life. And so that has led me on from there. So essentially at the very heart of my work in the past decade and a half has been sort of mapping out and theorizing this intersection between uh, new media technologies, the affordances they, they now create for young people and the ways in which young people now appropriate new media technologies and in offering sort of discourses about their own struggles, but also in intervening in public discourses. And part of that motivation, I think often there's a perception that as researchers, we're really very objective, so our lives are slightly different from what we do. But part of the motivation for this trajectory of my research derives from the fact that I, as a young man who grew up in Nigeria in a working class family, I saw strong resonances between what these young men were doing and my own life. And I was particularly struck by the ways in which African youth were often privileged in global scholarship as people who were disempowered. People would use things like uh, a lost generation. There was often the perception that African youth were hemmed in by global neoliberal economic forces on the one hand and a dubious post-colonial elite on the other hand. And so they were often framed as, as disempowered. And I wanted to call the attention 
to the innovation, to the resilience and the agency of young people in, in, in not just the production of cultural representations, but also in intervening in public discourses. So yeah, that's how I got here. I think many Americans are familiar with Hollywood, of course, and also to some extent Bollywood, the Bombay film industry. Nollywood, as you've just described it, and as we know, is both a global phenomenon, massive publications, for example, huge numbers of films coming out each year, as well as television shows, documentaries. Could you say a bit more about that combination? I mean, what's so interesting to me about, for example, Femi Urugbemi, this cinema filmmaker and remarkable character whom you're investigating, is he, he bridges all of those things, does he not? He does, he does, absolutely. Now, of course, and you and I have talked about this in very informal settings, uh, the term Nollywood itself was coined by a New York Times journalist in, in the early 2000s in describing this sort of artisanal film industry created by young people uh, in the early 1990s. But in using the term Nollywood, he was trying to draw connections between the aspirations of this marginalized youth and the investment in the production format and commercialism of Hollywood. But what's particularly unique about this industry, and this is the crucial point I need to make for the audience, is that we know of Hollywood, we know of Bollywood, and other national film industries. And all of these film industries depend entirely on celluloid technology. Nollywood is unique because it is the first film industry that depends entirely on video technology in the production, distribution, exhibition, and storage of films. So way before James Cameron shot Avatar, on digital video in 2009 and stunned the entire world, these young creatives in the continent were already producing films using video technology. And all of that happened in the context of a particular historical moment, and I'll try to sketch that context for you. Now, Nigeria, for example, was a modest sort of a former British colony that became independent in 1960, depended a whole lot on agricultural exports. It was a modest agri-economy. And then Shell uh, struck oil in 1958. You know, commercial production, no, 56 actually, commercial production started in 1958. Modestly, I, I think at about 300,000, 400,000 barrels a year. And it kept on growing. But then there was the Biafran Civil War, and I'm sure almost all Americans, the first images of global crisis in Africa uh, came from that war from 1967 to 1970. Now, the war ended in 1970, and then the country ramped up oil production from about 400,000 barrels to about 2 million barrels per day. And then it joined OPEC. But remember that 1972, 1973 was the Yom Kippur War, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and then there was the Arab oil embargo. And so the United States and other first world countries turned to the developing world, including Nigeria, for oil. And so the country was sort of wrecking in stupendous wealth uh, through oil revenues. But by the mid, the early 1980s, particularly the global economic recession between 1983 and 1984, you had this new independent African country that had enormous resources, revenue coming in from 
oil revenues. And then suddenly there was a global economic recession. So they had a bloated national budget on the one hand because they were investing in all kinds of capital projects, but without commensurate income coming from the sale of crude oil. So out of desperation, they turned to global financial institutions like the World Bank and the IMF to look for loans. Now, these institutions were willing to grant Nigeria and other third world countries these loans, but with very tough conditionalities. For example, one of the conditions for granting loans to um, Nigeria was that they devalued their currency. Before then, the, the Nigerian currency, the Naira, was the equivalent of the British pound. And so now you'll be asking, what are the implications of these kinds of economic policies for cultural production? Before then, the average Nigerian film director could afford to produce film on celluloid. They could afford to buy film rushes from abroad. They could afford to hire technical crew from Hollywood or anywhere in Europe. They could afford to go to studios in Hollywood or anywhere in the UK or Germany or France to do post-production with the devaluation of the indigenous local currency, they couldn't afford to do that. So indigenous filmmaking on the celluloid format died. But you already had a massive audience base that had been generated for Hollywood B-movies and then indigenous cinema, and then they were waiting without access to film. So these young people stepped in to fill that void and so they turned to video technology. Of course, video technology was primarily designed to collect news footage and not to make films. But essentially, they sort of reinvented that technology in generating audiovisual cultural representations for an existing audience that didn't have access to films produced within their own cultural setting. So this is the complex history. So that... Nollywood is not just a popular genre that was created out of the innovativeness of young people. It had something to do with a creative response to sort of skewed global neoliberal economic policies that did not prioritize the interest of the African continent. And so Nollywood is a classic example of the ways in which young people respond to global political and economic forces enveloping and shaping their own lives in, in many ways. Now, how does Odubemi's work feature uh, in all of this? He was born and raised in Nigeria, moved to the United States at the young age of 16 into, in 1979 to do film and uh, television production at Montana State University. But he was lucky to have four faculty members at the university at the time who took interest in him and took him under their wings and mentored him. And one of them was Dr. Jack Hipper. Uh, Jack Hipper was the chair of the Department of Mass Communication where Dubemi was doing his program. But he was also the founder of a private television station that was owned by the department. And as Fermi's mentor, he gave him access to that TV station where he did his intention as a student, but also where he worked part-time. And Femi has indicated that the creative skills that he brings into film production were actually developed and nurtured at Montana State University. So in a lot of ways, you are seeing the creative influences of American culture production 
in a genre that was developed uh, thousands of miles away from here. And there's often the perception that Nollywood is this genre that was created mostly by young people in the continent without any kind of creative influence from outside. And one of the things I'm trying to track here is that in, in many ways that it is a genre that was highly influenced by American cultural politics in many ways. And so Femi's training, the ways in which he draws on digital video technologies, not only in producing films, but also in producing popular TV dramas, have something to do even with the ways in which popular telenovelas from uh, South and Central America made it to African countries, particularly in Nigeria, in the 80s and the 1990s. So the serialization of films, the adoption of melodrama, and all of these things that you associate with international genres found their way into Nollywood production. So he's a great example of the ways in which marginalized uh, groups in the continent are adopting and appropriating new media technologies and in creating um, new cultural genres that not only speak to indigenous populations, but also respond to global political and economic forces in different ways. I want to pursue that last point because it's remarkable that a Nigerian film industry has been so successful in such a diversity of different places within Africa. Africa, of course, continental Africa, enormous diversity of languages, of cultural traditions. The idea that one national industry would yeah. be so successful across such a remarkable diversity of places is quite striking. Why is that? This is um, an interesting question. And I think the question speaks to some of the work that has been done around Nollywood, particularly in relation to its popularity. Now, because of the countercultural nature of Nollywood, it, sort of it doesn't use the standard technology for making films, which is celluloid, before now. Much of the industry has changed, and I can comment on that later on. But when it started, it wasn't using um, celluloid technology, didn't have studios associated with Hollywood or Bollywood, uh, worked on shoestring projects, worked with uh, unprofessional actors, and, and all of that. So it did everything. The, the, the industry did everything that is not associated with the global cinema industry. Now, the question then is, in spite of this unconventional nature, how come uh, the industry has become really very popular? One of the interesting work that has been done on Nollywood uh, was done by uh, Professor Nokome Okome, who happened to be my doctoral advisor, and uh, Matthias Krings, uh, who is an anthropologist at the University of Mainz in Germany. And they had organized a conference, I think this was in 2009, on transnational dimensions of Nollywood cinema. And even as Nollywood scholars at that conference, we were shocked at not just the popularity of Nollywood within the continent, across different countries and regions in the continent, but even amongst uh, the African diasporic audiences. Nollywood films are massively popular in the Caribbean. My landlady here in, in North Carolina is originally from the Bahamas, and her mom, when she comes to town, is always watching Nollywood films, and you're wondering how come. And I think there's an explanation for this. And... Um, Professor Mora de Wumade Jumobi, who is at the University of California, Davis, I think, wrote really this really insightful essay that speaks to the popularity of Nollywood. 
And she contested the notion that Nollywood films are not popular because of what has been claimed to be um, uh, what scholars initially argued to be cultural proximity, the ways in which the culture in Nigeria might be similar with the culture in Ghana and other African countries. And this is why Nollywood films might be popular because there's sort of cultural proximity. And she argues that it's not so much about cultural proximity as it is about, she calls, the substantive existential concerns that are raised by this popular genre, right? A widow that has been deprived access to the property and other resources left by her late husband in Nigeria, and, and films have been made about that, that kind of narrative would speak to a widow in Uganda, would speak to a widow in, in Jamaica, would speak to a widow in the Bahamas. So as a, a widow that is struggling with patriarchal structures, say in South Africa and Botswana, the films are popular not because the cultures are similar, because the continent is vast with different languages, different ethnicities, different cultures, different histories but it's because of the substantive existential concerns. And this brings me back to the whole conceptual framework of African popular arts and scholars like Professor Karen Baba, uh, Johannes Fabian, Stephanie Newell, and, and a whole lot of scholars have done work around this idea of the popular in relation to cultural production in the continent. And that term is often used in referring to uh, a whole range of cultural texts produced mostly by the non-elites, what Professor Karen Baba calls the intermediate class. But what unites all of these genres, whether it's popular fiction, whether it's popular theater, whether it's street paintings, whether it's Afro hip hop, whether it's popular cinema like Nollywood, you know, has something to do with the ways in which these genres convey the hopes, the fears, and anxieties of people in everyday life. And, and I think this is why uh, knowledge films are really popular. They, they capture those anxieties and fears of, of people in everyday life within the continent and in diaspora communities around the world. Paul, as a film scholar, you must be, of course, familiar with one of the ancient hopes and perhaps realities of film, which is that it has often had that very role from its very beginning. I'm thinking of the silent films of Charlie Chaplin, which are transcultural in their reach. You may not have anything to do with living in a Canadian Yukon, I guess, hut in the cold, but his humor and his approaches were widely popular across many, many different cultures. Do you think that Nigerian cinema is, in a sense, taking this promise of film to an even greater global level? Is that... What you're saying, that this genre, this approach, this way of communicating is reaching an even broader set of audiences thanks to being in the hands of young people in Nigeria? Absolutely. Now, I think your question speaks to a number of things. One is the sort of particular colonial history or legacy of cinema, particularly Hollywood cinema, and the ways in which African-Americans and by expansion, black people were presented as being a threat to white society and culture. The, the black person as a threat to white women and the particular ways in which Africans and uh, the black subject was often 
presented as people without civilization, as, as people with inferior intellect and, and all of that. And the ways in which when black cinema emerged in the 1950s, and I'm talking about black exploitation films here in the United States, or even the emergence of post-colonial African cinema and celluloid that emerged from the mid-1950s, it was very political because it was a cinema that was not only invested in decolonization struggles, it wasn't just a cinema invested in sort of tracking and challenging what you might call Euro-American neocolonialism, but it was a cinema that was invested in rehabilitating this damaged image and perception of black personhood in global cultural production. And so Nollywood films, when they emerged, the perception was always that it was a genre only meant for the local audience, that it had nothing to do with speaking to the world. But also, most importantly, the, the distinction that has often been made between Nollywood and post-colonial African cinema has always been that it is not political. Post-colonial African cinema was driven by this pan-Africanist sort of decolonial ideology that emerged in the 50s, in the mid-50s. Nollywood cinema, which is why it was dismissed by post-colonial African cinema directors, but also disparaged and ignored by um, African and world film scholars, it was that it didn't have this sort of political edge to it. It had no real sort of interventionist work that it was doing in any society. It aspired to the commitment to urban entertainment associated with Hollywood production. But part of the argument I'm trying to make in this book project, focusing on Femi's work, is that Femi's work is representative or is indicative of a long history of socially responsible cinema that has been going on in Nollywood for a very long time that scholars have never paid attention to. I am interested in not only tracking the unique aesthetic and sort of philosophical and thematic dimensions of his work as a first-rate film director of a global statue. But I'm also interested in the particular ways in which he has deployed cinema as a political tool, not only to critique a failed post-colonial system that is indifferent to human suffering and other forms of social anguish within the continent, but is also invested in speaking to the wider world about the everyday crises and struggles, but also accomplishments and dreams of people in the continent. In other words, the ways in which his work functions to critique a failing post-colonial order uh, within the continent itself, but also uh, a form of visual poetics that is invested in addressing the world about the, what you might call the ups and downs, the accomplishments and failures of Africa as part of a, a global human race, as part of a global human condition, right? His most recent film, and I gave a talk about it recently at one of the investors around here, um, which the title of the film is Unmaxed, is about the mismanagement of a COVID crisis in Nigeria. And you would see that the problems that he chronicles in that film about 
the healthcare system in Nigeria is not any different from the mismanagement of COVID in, in the United States by the previous administration, right? And so if you begin to think about the ways in which someone like Norm Chomsky describes the mismanagement of COVID in the United States, which leads to the death of close to about sort of 800, 900,000 people in this country, it designates the United States as a failed state Right. And those are terms that we often reserve for third world countries. And Femi does the same thing in this work. And what that tells us is that the failures in, in Africa are not any different from the failures happening anywhere in the world, including the United States. But also the successes happening here are not any different from uh, the accomplishments happening in the continent. It's in the United States. I think it was the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, one of the ministries, that recently estimated that Nollywood, this artisanal film industry created mostly by marginalized youth, is what about four billion United States dollars, right? So we look at the continent and we see all of these narratives of infrastructural decline of disease and all. They think, oh, that's all that is there. But the other things going on, right? And I think Femi's work is at the center of that kind of politics where they point to the failures and accomplishments of the continent that are comparable to the failures and accomplishments of other national settings all over the world. So it is a genre that is documenting the crisis and, and, and different forms of progress in the continent in relation to what's happening all over the world. Paul, what a perfect example of what scholars hope to achieve, to understand more fully the public effusia, the sort of cultural explosion that's happening in a place like Nigeria, and then to see its deeper context. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration from the National Humanities Center.